The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. We're going to begin now in earnest tonight. Uh, we're going to look at the Hermetic Science of Motion and Number, and we'll be reading uh, from a book by a Dr. A.S. Raleigh, who is the late official scribe of the Hermetic Brotherhood. Uh, this book was written in, this is a reprint from 1924. Uh, I believe it was written in 1910, somewhere in that era, originally. Uh, but this is actually uh, listed as a course of private lessons uh, from Dr. Raleigh himself to people on some of the concepts that are taught in some of the Hermetic Brotherhoods, um, some of the secret societies. And uh, many of these principles are actually uh, derived from ancient Greek metaphysics, among other things. So... Uh, this is a really good source of information for people. If you could uh, uh, find this book out there somewhere. Um, the first paperback, it says here, was printed in 1981. So it's, it's a book that stood the test of time. And uh, it says, This republication of this book has been made possible by a bequest from Paul Gentile. Copyright 1924, uh, like we had alluded to there earlier. So uh, this uh, is actually... Um, a very good book. It's it's chock full of a lot of useful information. It'll give you a crash crash course on uh, metaphysics, actually. So uh, we're going to go ahead and just read uh, what the first lesson here says. He's got it broken down into twelve different sections, and he has them listed as lessons, uh, more so than like say chapters. Um, you know, you could kind of it's the semantics of it all. You could either call them chapters or, or whatever you want to do. But uh, for time's sake tonight, uh, we're going to go through and just do uh, the first section here, the first lesson, in the foreword of the book. And I'll just begin reading from there. It says, In these twelve lessons there is presented to the student a perfect knowledge of the science of motion. He will in this way be able to perfectly understand the ultimate as well as the immediate cause of all manifestation of nature. In this way, the first steps toward an understanding of the Theosophia will be taken. Without this knowledge, an understanding of nature in the abstract is an utter impossibility. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. That's the end of the foreword. It was only a very short paragraph. Uh, but at any rate, um, basically what this is telling us is that uh, this Theosophia, as they call it, the the um, godly wisdom or wisdom of God or wisdom of the gods uh, the love of knowledge the love of uh, divine knowledge that would translate to that's what it's looking for here and it's it's about understanding how nature really works okay and uh, this is coming from a metaphysical standpoint on many of these things so uh, when we look at the metaphysical aspect of things here we can see that uh, it, a lot of times, some of these things line up with what we would call our modern physics, and sometimes they don't. It's two heads of the same coin, okay? Metaphysics and physics are all wrapped together. Uh, the only major difference is uh, it's our understanding of how these things work. Uh, our modern physics model comes up with different frameworks that it tries to uh, push this stuff in that don't necessarily line up. And when you go back to uh, the older natural sciences and alchemical sciences, you could see right away that the way these things operate and are, are described here, they make a lot more sense than what our, our modern physics models do. 
so uh, with that being said, we could see we've been actually approaching uh, these sciences all wrong um, when it comes down to it, like our, our modern scientism uh, <laughs> type of a society that we have. Uh, it, it approaches these things in a totally wrong way. Uh, when you look at it from the uh, natural order aspect of things and uh, that kind of thing, it, it does make a whole lot more sense than, say, like something like the quantum physics nonsense and the descriptors they come up with for that. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of those effects and stuff are real effects, but how it's being described is convoluted and mixed up. Um, we as finite human beings try to put... Uh, descriptors on things that don't necessarily fit um, and in order to fit those kind of things into our little box of standard uh, uh, notion that we have for things and that's that's what's wrong with our modern science it tends to ignore some of the older ideas uh, thinking that they're backwards or something somehow when actually it makes more sense and it's been known from time immemorial and if we pursue those avenues of thought I think we could actually have a much better run at things so anyway let's take a peek here lesson one here's the description of lesson one in the table of contents and this is what we're going to look at tonight uh, it says the law of motion showing how all material forms are merely the product of definite rates of motion in the ether and how even the energies and forces of nature are merely the product of definite rates of motion. The entire field of vibration is therein reduced to an exact science. Uh, and so that's a good descriptor of some of the things we're going to learn here tonight. The law of motion. All things in the material world are the result of motion. The doctrine as laid down by John Tyndall that all things are a mode of motion of force is perfectly true. It is simply the reappearing of the ancient metaphysic. Tyndall adopted the theory from Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer adopted it from Kant. And Kant obtained it from the Neoplatonists. And they secured it from Pythagoras. Pythagoras learned it in Egypt and India. It becomes, therefore, the universal conception of the occult scientists of the ancient world. It is the key to the constitution of matter in relation to force. And I'm going to pause right there. Um, so basically what they're telling you here is, uh, this is the, the, the series of, of people who have brought it forward into the modern era. And they trace it back to Pythagoras, and from Pythagoras back to Egypt and India, and to people unknown uh, from way back in our early uh, prehistory, per se. Uh, so many of these things have been passed down through time, uh, through many of the philosophers and, and many of the people, uh, metaphysicians, who who understood these things and taught these things to each other. And they've been uh, kind of secured in what we would call the mystery schools in ancient times and passed forward down through the lineage, through time, through what are mostly our modern secret societies. So, uh, you know, this knowledge has been recorded and much of it has only been passed on in an oral form from uh, teacher to student uh, through an unbroken line of secession. And that, that's the interesting part. But many people have attempted to put portions of this uh, to paper. And that's what we're looking at here tonight. Uh, like I said, this is a really good breakdown of how many of these metaphysical ideas operate. And if you understand these, I think you'll have a better understanding of how the world truly works. You'll, you'll notice that things begin to make more sense to you than if you look at it 
through the lens of our modern science. So uh, at any rate, let's continue on here. The modern chemist is coming to discover the truth of a number of those things which were held and taught by the ancient alchemists. We are beginning to learn that the so-called elements are not really simple elements, but are in reality more combinations. We were taught some years ago that there were 72 elements. I'm going to pause there, folks. Remember, this is uh, 1924 is the reprint date. I think the original date of this was 1910. So 72 elements. Let's continue where we left off. We were taught some years ago that there were 72 elements which were absolutely elementary and could not be divided. We have found, however, that there are 86 so far located as so-called elements, but none of them are really elements. They are simply combinations. The molecule. The molecule is the unit of the element. The element cannot be divided without the dissolution of the molecule. Physical change consists in the division of any substance in a group of matter into its constituent molecules. Chemical change consists in the division of the molecule into its component atoms. And I'm uh, going to pause there, folks. And now he's going to give a breakdown of the idea of atoms. Now, you'll notice that uh, in our traditional, uh, well, not our traditional, I should say, our, our more modern uh, science, they, they speak of elements an element would be made up of an atom. Okay, now you'll notice that he's using the term molecules here because he's holding uh, to the idea that there are only a handful of actual basic elements, okay, and that all of these other things that we classify as elements are just a combination of different factors. So uh, that's, that's why he's kind of making this uh, type of a statement here. But now we'll get into the next part as to how he describes the atom, okay? The atom. There are only four kinds of atoms. All the others are mere molecules. The four elements of the old alchemists were earth, air, fire, and water. Or, in modern parlance, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. These are the basis from which the so-called elements of chemistry are formed. The molecule is simply a structure formed of the combination of these four atoms. And once again, I'll pause right there, folks. So you can see he's broken this whole thing down into four basic elements that correspond with earth, air, fire, and water. And those are carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen, respectively. Now, uh, the other elements he claims are nothing but a combination of other different combinations of these uh, key four elements, okay? So like if you combine uh, together these different uh, things, you, you come up with these heavier elements on our, our periodic table, uh, so to say. So uh, what he's claiming here is that, uh, like say, you know, from our modern science perspective, okay, the major difference in the elements would be the number of protons within the atom, okay? So if you think in terms of what he's referring to here as the atom, as being protons of sorts, it's the same basic kind of an idea. But he's saying there's only four basic elements, okay, that, that make things up. And, uh, you know, th this could kind of be argued to be true. 
when it comes down to it because our, our periodic table of elements is actually all kind of skewed and when it comes down to it uh, basically there's there's only one primary uh, basic particle and that would be the proton that makes any of these things really different uh, the concept of electrons is actually even kind of sketchy in and of itself uh, when, when you actually get down to the atomic level looking at these things uh, nobody's ever captured an electron particle uh, and that's that's an, an interesting idea if you're looking at things from modern scientific terms because if you're looking at it from our modern physics and our modern science perspective uh, there's so many technologies that are based on the concept of electrons being a thing but in practicality in the real world it doesn't really work like that it's it's an abstract concept it's a conceptualization that's all it is it's a human conceptualization uh, and once again this this goes back to uh, the basic difference between two different uh, thought processes and this goes back to the philosophy of atomism once again where they try to break things down into basic component parts and say there's there's these basic component parts to everything and they try to break it down to a particle everything's a particle to them okay so this is your cult of quantum at work there uh, when, when you look at these things but uh, an electron is a conceptual idea okay uh, same thing the neutron if if you uh, actually if given enough time uh, to bind and combine properly atoms will revert back to protons all the neutrons in the atom will revert to protons as well so they'll either split off and form you know a new atom or uh, it'll revert to a proton and uh, this is kind of how a uh, what you would kind of call a uh, what would we call it the, the the change in elements like a transmutation of sorts i don't want to use the word transmutation but this is basically what the the alchemists uh, thought of as as being it would be a transmutation from one element to another or you could have like a heavy element so like all these neutrons and stuff these extra neutrons they eventually will either decompose or break off and become a proton or um they'll just become like a heavier element so per se so when you look at it from that perspective and this is coming at it from the metaphysics point of view uh, once again so this is kind of how they they try to pursue these ideas and it's tough for us in the modern era when we were all indoctrinated through school to try and think back in these terms when you were taught in school the atom is made up of a proton a neutron and an electron and uh, it looks like this. It looks like planets orbiting and stuff like that. Once again, they get that kind of an idea in your head as well. Uh, the, the orbiting, the, you know, particles around a nucleus and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, let's get back to the reading. I don't want to get hung up, too hung up on that idea uh, this early on in the reading. Alchemical change. The alchemical change which the old alchemists were trying to accomplish was the division of these four atoms into the ultimate physical atom from which they were formed when we have passed back of these we come to the ultimate physical atom or the etheric atom which is the basis of formation of the generation of the four atoms and I'm gonna pause there again this is kind of a, a hard uh, concept for people to uh, wrap their minds around the etheric atom okay this is something that uh, we can't really uh, measure 
in our physical reality here okay this is like the substrate upon which all all matter and stuff is built uh, and this has to do once again with the idea of ether okay so uh, ether is the uh, medium in which we move and have our being all things do and this is also the uh, source of generation for many of these things but uh, I don't want to get uh, too much sidetracked there let's get back because we got a lot of information here to cover tonight Okay, next section here, and he just led in to the formation of ultimate atoms. There are three ultimate atoms. The ultimate physical atom, which is the unit of ether. The ultimate vital or astral atom, which is the unit of life force. And the ultimate mental atom, which is the unit of mind. These three are the basis of those three primates of which all things are formed. But the three primates themselves are structures formed from the one primary cosmic energy, the unit of which is the ultimate atom. And I'm going to stop there, folks. I know this gets a little confusing and convoluted at times, but you have to be able to um, think in terms of the not physical. And that's hard for us to do because we exist in a physical world. Okay, So he says here there's... A physical atom, an astral atom, and a mental atom. Okay, the astral or vital atom. He says those eight terms could be used uh, interchangeably. And there's also the mental atom. He says is the unit of mind. Okay, and uh, in the Hermetic philosophy, mind precedes all. So your thought precedes reality. And this kind of extrapolates on that idea a little bit. So we have physical astral and mental okay and then there's also what he calls a unit which is the ultimate atom because he says these three themselves are structures formed from one primary cosmic energy the ultimate atom so then let's move on here vibration all forms of energy are in a continuous state of vibration this cosmic energy with its ultimate rhythm this rhythm the atom, by reason of this rhythm, assumes a certain form, a definite geometrical figure. It also expresses itself in a definite color and produces a definite sound by reason of its rhythmic vibration. Uh, we emphasize a lot of times the idea of vibration or uh, rhythm, uh, these kind of things. Or, or for Nikola Tesla said, in order to better understand the universe, you need to think in terms of frequency and vibration. So um, that's kind of... Uh, what this comes from okay uh, he got a lot of these ideas from the metaphysicians of old and um, it wasn't actually even really classified at one point as what they would call quote-unquote metaphysics metaphysics and physics are one and the same thing it's two sides of the same coin so when you're looking at these things it's just a matter of your perspective on them okay and I think some of these older ideas offer better understanding for how nature really works than many of our newer sciences would. Let's move on here. Rhythm. When the rate of vibration has fallen below a certain point, the rhythm of mind is reached. That is to say, the ultimate atom begins to vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of the mental plane. When this takes place, the various atoms which are vibrating to this rhythm are, by reason of the rhythm, attracted and held together by cohesion. 
The rhythm of mind governs and controls this ultimate mental atom. These atoms differ in accordance with the different rhythms, or notes, which govern the vibration of the mental plane. Thus, they are drawn together and form in accordance with the rhythm, or note, which is governing the vibration. When the vibration or rhythm descends below the level of the mental plane, the highest vibration is on a scale lower than the lowest vibration of the mental scale, and the rhythm of life is the result. When the rhythm of life is established within the atom, the mental atom is dissolved into its constituent ultimate atoms. The rhythm of life is now established within them, so they vibrate in accordance with that rhythm. They are thus drawn together by attraction, bound by cohesion, the result being the ultimate vital or astral atom. This atom, vibrating now in accordance with the rhythm of life, being held together by this note, assumes a form in accordance with its quality and rate of vibration. It also produces a color corresponding to it. By a high rate of vibration, we mean a rapid, intense vibration, also a short wavelength vibration. By a low rate of vibration, we mean a correspondingly slower vibration, more gradual, and also a correspondingly longer wavelength vibration. And we're going to pause right there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, key ideas in here. Okay, It talks about notes and rhythm and how all these things vibrate in accordance with one another and how this is the manifestation of how life comes about. So you could see, I mean, uh, how it harkens back to biblical scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it also says, uh, in the beginning God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. So existence is spoken into being. It's sound, it's rhythm, it's vibration. It's all of these things, it's frequency. And this, I think, also corresponds with what consciousness is. And consciousness is a key part to all of this because consciousness precedes all of it. And that uh, goes right along with this whole idea of this mental atom. And you see uh, how uh, many of the metaphysicians of old and uh, the philosophers describe this as how these things uh, precede what we would consider matter here or uh, material things, the material plane that we live in, how all these things came about. So this is why the study of things like cymatics is so very important. Uh, because these sound frequencies and stuff like that, uh, I believe there's, there's a lot more going on with it uh, than what we're told. And I think there are people in positions of power in this world that have a better understanding of some of these more ancient sciences than what we do. And they utilize them in many of the uh, um, higher echelon secret military industrial complex programs. Uh, so they have a better understanding of this. And, and I mean, we could prove this out by looking at uh, documented and known things that are, are provable, like the CIA's project Stargate, uh, where they were looking at uh, remote viewing and stuff like that. Uh, and they, they did it in a serious scientific way. And uh, they actually found that it works and it's got uh, good results. So, uh, and that kind of thing speaks directly to these ideas that we're discussing here tonight now. So, let's continue on here. Ultimate physical atom. 
When the scale of vibration has descended to that point where the highest vibration is on a scale lower than the lowest vibration of the vital or astral scale, I'm going to pause there. You'll notice uh, in the previous paragraph where we read they were talking about uh, the mental atom, okay? Once again, uh, think about uh, how he has this broken down. The ultimate mental atom, the astral atom, and then the physical atom. It steps down, see? It's a step down. It's a corresponding step down. As above, so below. Well, it's stepping down to the below, okay? And this goes back to some more philosophical ideas of, uh, like, the, uh, the, the plane of uh, manifestation, the initial plane of manifestation where it comes from, going back to ideas like monad and duad and things like that. Uh, so um, and a lot of this has to do with, like, monistic metaphysics, uh, things of that nature, how we all derive from one source, from God, so to say, and uh, we step down into the physical, and then from the physical we step back up into uh, more a rhythm, and we could see that here. And there's a scale involved to it, and that's what he's talking about right here. So let's, let's continue on there. I'll read through the rest of this paragraph here. When the scale of vibration has descended to that point where the highest vibration is on a scale lower than the lowest vibration of the vital or astral scale, the atom is again dissolved into its constituent ultimate atoms. These ultimate atoms begin to vibrate in accordance with the physical rhythm or etheric rhythm, and by reason of this rhythm are drawn together and held by cohesion, thus forming the ultimate physical atom, which is held together by the physical note or rhythm of the physical plane. This ultimate physical atom is the unit of ether. All matter vibrating upon this highest subdivision of the physical scale, which has for its unit the ultimate physical atom, is etheric. So, I'm going to pause there. Once again, it's important to understand uh, why they've been hiding the idea of ether for so long, or the existence of ether. They don't want people to understand this, because if you have a basic understanding of these ideas, uh, then you could have... Uh, a, a form of power. Knowledge is power, okay, uh, when it comes down to it. So knowledge of these steps of manifestation, of how things come to manifestation, um, can lead into a disparity of power between those who want to control everything and those that just want to be left alone and maybe be able to manifest good things in their own lives. See, uh, so it's always about uh, these people in positions of power that want to be controlling things these technocrats at the top of the power structure here, the ones that want, you know, to really uh, put together this whole panopticon lockdown type scenario here uh, that, that we've been living through this past year. So anyway, but uh, not to get too hung up on that idea, uh, let's continue reading here and see what else we could learn here. The physical atoms, by reason of this rate of vibration, travel in straight lines back and forth. The mental atoms, by reason of their rhythm, travel in zigzag lines. The astral atoms, that is to say the atoms of emotion, feeling, desire, travel in a curved line, while the life vibrations of the astral atom travel in a spiral. And I'm going to pause right there. There are so many important aspects of uh, knowledge held up in that one paragraph that I just read, uh, how the physical 
physical atoms travel in straight lines. Remember this. Mental atoms travel in zigzag lines. Astral atoms, that's to say emotions, feelings, all of that, travel in curved lines. And life itself, the vibrations of life itself, travel in a spiral type of a scenario. This is the basic conjugate uh, geometry of existence. These four facets of things combine together. Uh, this explains how magnetic fields work, first of all. And, um, you know, that, that's one of the key forces, one of two key forces. And they're actually the same force, just different aspects of it. Electric, electricity and magnetism. Two sides of the same coin, once again, when you're looking at it. But uh, basically, these ideas correspond directly with how nature works, in my view. And it makes more sense than the idea of all these tiny particles colliding. You know, that, that's the way they want you to believe. They want you to believe everything has to do with a tiny particle colliding together and affecting one another. When in reality, you could see this makes more sense, okay? That if you think in the terms of four different planes, the astral plane, the etheric plane, the mental plane, and the physical plane, okay? When, when you think in, in terms of this... Um, you could see how, uh, if you're looking at the geometry of how it all interplays together in a four-dimensional uh, geometry, how this all works. And it, it's kind of hard to conceptualize sometimes or look at. But I, I would, I would say, if you think in terms of, uh, you know, electricity and magnetism, how that works. Uh, when you look at different models of how that works, how it, it creates toroidal fields. Okay, and how everything in nature tends to uh, form into a spiral pattern. Okay, uh, these things, th there's meaning for this. And this, this is kind of some of the metaphysics that lies behind this. And once again, physics, metaphysics, same thing, different sides of the coin. It's all a matter of uh, how you observe it, your observation point. So, uh, but let's, let's read on here. Thus, in the various forces of nature... These various forms of energy in their vibratory activity not only assume a definite form, but also travel each in a definite direction, pertaining to itself alone. In the formation of organisms, therefore, the character of the energy determines, by reason of its peculiar direction of activity, the figure of the object. Genesis of the Atoms When the ultimate physical atoms descend one step in the rate of vibration, they combine by reason of the lower vibration being held together by cohesion, forming the electron of electricity, which electron being the unit of electricity, is the second subplane of the etheric or physical plane, the pure ether being the first. And I'm going to pause right there. Now he does say electron of electricity. And he, he noticed that he delineates here that the electron is being used as a unit of electricity. See, that's the thing. It was meant to be a unit or a measure, okay? A way to measure something. It, it's a, an abstract concept that they used in order to measure an idea, okay? It's not something that's physically been proven to exist. Uh, so, I mean, and, and I know it sounds a little ridiculous for me to say that uh, an electron has never been physically proven to exist, but it's it's true it really has not it's a conceptualization it's a man-made conceptualization uh used as a unit of measure here and that's exactly what he's talking about he makes sure to denote that it's a unit of measure okay uh so let's let's get back to where we left off so it says 
uh, electricity is the second subplane of the etheric or physical plane, the pure ether being the first. Descending one step lower, the vibration draws together the atoms by cohesion and forms the electron of magnetism. Which electron is the unit of magnetism being the third subplane of the physical plane? Descending, or sorry, descending still lower in its rate of vibration, the electrical electron differentiates itself first into the positive electron, or sorry, the positive electric, or fire atoms. The fire atom being the same as the oxygen, only of an etheric rather than a gaseous form. Gonna pause there. I know some of this kind of sounds confusing and convoluted um, at times, but um, if you really sit and concentrate and think about what he's telling you here, you have to think beyond the scope of physical, okay, beyond the scope of the physical plane. So when you're stepping up into, say, the etheric plane, per se, um, that, that's what he's talking about here. And all these four elemental ideas exist in each of these planes, okay, and they connect through these planes. So that's why the terms like fire, water, earth, and air, these four basic philosophical elements are so important because it ties in at these higher planar levels, okay? And it's something that crosses over between these barriers that, you know, we, we can't truly comprehend in our finite human intelligence. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that's kind of what he's talking about here. Um, anyway, second, into the negative electric, or water atom, which is the same as the atom of hydrogen, only being etheric rather than gaseous. Each of these atoms has its own particular cord, which binds together and holds the various electrons by cohesion so as to form its atomic structure. The atom being merely a structured form formed of electrons, the electrons of magnetism, descending one step lower in the vibratory scale vibrate to another cord which binds together and holds them by cohesion forming the positive magnetic or earth atom the same as the modern atom of carbon the magnetic electron descending still further in its vibratory rate a number of them are drawn together by reason of the lower cord and held by cohesion forming the negative magnetic or airy atom the same as the modern chemical atom of nitrogen. And I'm going to pause there. So you see how he uh, attributes these these uh, different qualities to these things, okay? The fire, water, earth, and air. See, um, air would be the negative magnetic. Um, the earth would be the positive magnetic. And then the electric would be the fire. That would be the positive magnetic or sorry, the positive electric, and water would be, <laughs> I got those backwards, yeah, water would be the negative electric. So fire, positive electric. See, water, negative electric, earth, positive magnetic, and the air would be negative magnetic. So there's different attributes being applied here to these ideas, these things. And when you actually um, try to put the modern chemical name on these things. So carbon would be positive and magnetic in attribution, and uh, nitrogen would be negative and magnetic in attribution. Uh, so you, hydrogen would be negative and electric, and then you have oxygen would be positive and electric. See, 
Uh, so when you're looking at these ideas, it, it kind of crosses over into different philosophical thinking here. But it's it's one of those things where it could uh, kind of uh, transcend uh, different levels of science when when you think in these ways. They they really came up with a, a classification system for this stuff back in the ancient metaphysics. Uh, so you could know some things about stuff uh, by looking at these things. And, and once again, it's, it comes down to the same thing when we're talking about all different kinds of things like color. You, you could, uh, you know, know some certain ideas about something based on its color if you know enough of this information. Uh, it's, it's the same kind of a, a principle here. Um, but anyway, let's, let's continue on here because we still have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, there's only about... Uh, 20 some minutes here left to cover this stuff so uh, I don't want to get too much into a diatribe and, and tie this up for too long like I said I'd like to try and keep these down to around an hour if we go a little over that's fine as long as nobody minds hanging around a little extra uh, that'd be fine next portion here after we look at these ideas of uh, how uh, these different uh, planner levels step down into the physical and form these elemental ideas uh, we get to the next portion here. The sex principle in nature. The electrical force is the masculine force of nature. The magnetic is the feminine. It is by reason of this sex differentiation that the physical world is able to be produced from the ether. This principle was clearly understood by the ancient Greeks when they taught the birth of the world from Father Ether. It will be seen, therefore, that far from being a mere animal condition for the sake of carnal gratification, sex differentiation exists in the very foundation of nature. The manifested universe could have no existence without it. It is by the union of the two principles, electricity and magnetism, each positively and negatively differentiating so as to form the four elementaries oxygen hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon, otherwise earth, air, fire, and water, that the chemical world has been produced. So I'm going to pause right there. There were a lot of important ideas right in that paragraph there. So you see, uh, when you look at these things, uh, what are they doing with the, the principle of gender in the world today? Well, it's all muddled up and confused right now, isn't it? And uh, this is the reason, because you see, it says right here, sex differentiation exists in the very foundation of nature. So, in order to completely invert the natural world, this is something that they would like to eliminate from the equation. Okay, They don't want there to be this inherent difference or these inherent ideas, uh, but they do exist at the very foundation of nature. And it's because of these differences that everything even exists. I mean, it's a simple idea. When you think about it in the form of uh, how does the human race carry on? Well, uh, a male and a female have a child. That's how it, ex it exists. It's the same kind of thing. Well, you eliminate um, a portion of that from the mix, and there's there's no new life, see? So so that's the thing. That's, that's why it's a part of the very foundation of nature. In order to obtain life, you have to have uh, this, uh, this uh, what, how does he refer to it here? Sex differentiation. 
this condition. That's why there's a masculine force in nature and a feminine force in nature. And these things are always, you know, kind of shown uh, in the elemental type form. So let's move on to the next part here. Personification of the elements. We can now, in the light of this, understand why all nations of antiquity have personified fire and water the electrical elements by gods in the male form, and the earth and air by goddesses in the female form, because they are magnetic, therefore feminine in their genesis. Genesis of the molecule. The atoms of these four elementaries by combination form the various molecules of the 86 chemical elements. The character of these elements depends upon the proportion in which the four elements are united each element contributing its rate of vibration chord in accordance with the proportion in which it is present in the combination, that is to say, the number of its atoms which are present in proportion to the atoms of the other elements, each atom moving in accordance with the rate of vibration, the chord governing its vibratory activity, the various chords being drawn together cause them to act harmoniously, blending to form a certain tone. This tone binds together and holds the atoms both by adhesion and cohesion so as to form the molecule, and the molecule depends for its character upon the tone which holds it together. And I'm going to pause right there, and we're getting to a very important uh, concept here in this next portion, and it's something uh, we need to pay careful attention to because it's foundational um, to... Uh, things that we can understand to be true. And it's also important for us to explore this idea. So I'm going to continue on here with the reading. <clears throat> the keynote. There are 86 different vibratory tones which, therefore, give rise to 86 different kinds of molecules and hence to 86 different chemical elements. When these various molecules combine by reason of a keynote, which holds them together, causing the various tones to blend and unite, it produces the harmonious rhythmic force with one dominant note, constituting the keynote, the note which binds and holds all the others together, preserving their unity through adhesion and cohesion, and a physical object is produced. Every group of matter, mineral or organic, is merely a structure composed of numberless molecules of the various chemical elements held together by a keynote. And I'm going to pause right there. This is such a key idea, and this plays so heavily into things like cymatics and uh, uh, even electrical theory and magnetic theory, electromagnetism, these kind of things. The keynote, the idea of the keynote... Uh, this one tone holds things together. And uh, it's it's been rumored, and I don't know how much proof there is of this or not, but uh, Nikola Tesla allegedly built what he called an earthquake machine. And basically, if he tuned this thing uh, to the right frequency, if he found this keynote for whatever uh, object he was trying to uh, affect with it, uh, he was able to tune it to that, and if he left it turned on long enough, it would completely disintegrate the object. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is something that is merely, um, you know, a, a modern-day myth uh, with the character of who uh, Nikola Tesla was, or if there was something actually physically to that idea. 
And I really think there may be uh, based upon this keynote idea. So uh, you could see it, it was rumored and, and there was some form of earthquake machine or something that he had developed. Uh, I think there are actual writings uh, verifying that, but uh, whatever happened to it, no one can say for sure. But, uh, you know, does it work on this principle? I think if uh, it's a real thing and if it could be sussed out to be true, uh, this would probably be the principle that it works on is the principle of the keynote. Uh, but let's, let's go ahead and uh, continue the reading. We can see from this that everything in the material world is nothing but the result of vibration. The very form, the very substance, so-called, which we look at and take for reality, is nothing but a fortuitous concourse of atoms, as Professor Haeckel once called it. And this fortuitous concourse of atoms is nothing but the outgrowth of a harmonious state of vibration. Genesis of Form the whole secret of the constitution of matter is therefore this. All form is merely a mode of motion of force, and force itself is but a mode of motion of the original cosmic energy. In fact, form is found on all the planes of nature, the forms present in the finer forces simply combining to form the more gross forms on the lower planes of nature. This is the secret of the philosophy of Kant, Berkeley, and Schopenhauer, which teaches that the material world is only an illusion. The ideal world is the reality. The physical world is but an illusion. It is also the secret underlying the Vedanta, sorry, Vedanta, sorry, I said that wrong, Vedanta philosophy, and those various philosophies of India, denying the reality of the material world, teaching it to be but an illusion of the senses. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Uh, so see, th that whole concept of uh, the fact that uh, we may be living in a quote-unquote simulation or it's all an illusion, this kind of thing. <coughs> that didn't originate with the movie The Matrix, folks. This goes back a very long time. Uh, many of the uh, metaphysicians and philosophers of ancient times understood this to be a truth. Okay, uh, The material world we live in is sort of like an illusion in many senses. <clears throat> anyway, uh, let's get back to the reading. We look at a block of marble, for instance. It appears to us to be solid. We think here is reality, truly here is substance. We speak of this as being something tangible, something real. The other things, idealism, etc., being visionary. A greater mistake was never made. This block of marble, which we regard as being so real, so substantial, is in truth merely millions of molecules, relatively as far apart as the earth is from the sun, which are revolving around each other, vibrating about one another, and only held together by reason of the keynote, which binds together and unifies all the various tones, chords, notes, rhythms, vibrations, etc. Unreality of Matter Were it not for the intense rapidity of this vibration, we would be able to see the unreality of the object. <coughs> The only reason why it appears to be solid, firm, substantial is because its molecules are vibrating so rapidly we cannot see them. Were the keynote to cease, 
were of force to be introduced sufficient to break the power of this keynote, the binding power, immediately, the block of marble would be dissolved into its constituent molecules. They would each and all go off on a tangent. The force which preserves the equilibrium and binds the molecules together having ceased to act, the object would disappear. And I'm going to pause right there. And this is kind of what was reported with this alleged earthquake machine that Nikola Tesla built. Uh, this kind of an idea. So you can see the idea of the keynote has been around a long time. And it could be something substantially important to modern science. And, uh, you know, many of these people that push the idea of, uh, uh, you know, the our reality being a type of simulation... Um, a simulation or a simulacrum or, or something along those lines, um, they, they would follow this line of thought. They would be able to prove that to be so if they could figure out the concept of the keynote. Okay, <clears throat> But uh, that wouldn't make this place any less real, would it? <laughs> Knowing if that was the case. Uh, it's it's uh, food for thought there. Just something to think on. Let's continue on here. We're almost done. Just hang in there. we got about ten more minutes to go. Illusion. We can see, therefore, that a physical object is merely the result of the harmonious vibration of the molecules of which it is composed. Consequently, it has no permanent reality. It is merely the result of vibration. The result is observed by the senses, but the vibration, which is the substance, that which is the foundation on which the object stands, this vibration cannot be seen because of the grossness of the physical senses. Well, as a matter of fact, it is the only reality. It is the cause. The object is the effect. It is because of this fact that the idealistic philosophers have always denominated the physical world the world of illusion. It is an illusion because it is not what it seems to be an illusion of the senses. Because of this fact, the Vedantins have always taken the position that the material world was nothing but a mode of motion of the ether. Therefore, the ether is the only reality. This was also the doctrine of Kant and others, but only this. Sankaracharya realized that the etheric self, as well as the life and mind, even are but mode of motion of the cosmic energy, the inner akasha of the Hindus. Therefore, these are all illusions. They are not reality. They are not what they seem to be, but are merely modes of motion of the cosmic energy, and therefore they are an illusion of the senses. They have no existence in themselves, in the absolute, but only in the relative. This was also understood by Buddha when he taught that there was nothing but akasha and nirvana, or, as we say in the West, vibration, merely modes of motion of these two forces. The real. But Sankaracharya and Sri Krishna go still a, a step further, and they tell us that as a matter of fact, akasha, the cosmic energy itself, is merely a mode of motion merely a rate of vibration of nirvana, or spirit, and we can go still further. For Sankaracharya goes still further and shows that spirit itself is but vibration, a mode of motion from 
per uh, Brahman, God, the Absolute, and therefore there is nothing else but God. It is but an illusion of the senses. There, nothing ex exists but God. This outer world is but a world of form, which is merely the manifestation, the outer expression, the shadow, the reflection of God. Parabrahman, the unmanifest. Therefore, he denies that they have any existence. To him, they are merely illusions of the senses. They are not things in themselves, but are merely appearances. We see them. We think they are real because we do not realize that they are but manifestations, but expressions, but forms, which the divine energy assumes in its manifestations. Merely a mask, which conceals the divine energy, which is back of all of these things. They are only expressions of the phenomenal world and not the noumenal, things as they seem and things as they are. For this reason, the Oriental teachers deny the personality, deny all expressions and appearances, and try to realize the nothingness of the world in order that they may comprehend the reality. It is not that they deny that the outer things exist in the sense in which a Westerner would deny it. They do not deny that the things exist in the relative. What they deny is that it exists in the absolute, as a thing in itself. The whole purpose of this attitude is the recognition that all these objects which are presented to the senses are merely the result of the cooperative, harmonious activity of motion as presented to the physical senses, and the appearance which it assumes is simply because of the limitation of our physical senses because they are unable to penetrate to the reality. Recognize the force of motion, which is back of, underlying, and expressing itself through the form. They affirm the illusion of form because it is mere appearance, a limitation, the result of a view of the various molecules, etc., collectively and not individually. It is in this sense, in the sense of it being a limited view, instead of a complete view, that they affirm the illusory character of the physical world. And in this, they are right. It is in this sense an illusion of the senses. It is merely a projection, a manifestation, which is the outgrowth of motion according to number in all the various combinations as stated in the foregoing. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. That's a lot of information we just read through there. Um, you could see what they're saying here is because we have a finite view of... Uh, our reality around us. We cannot fully comprehend how um, all of this stuff works and what is actually what we would call quote-unquote real, okay? It's all an illusion, okay? It's all based upon um, our perspectives, okay? And we as individuals uh, could only see a very limited view of the, the big picture, see? And that's kind of what it comes down to. Uh, it's all a matter of... Um, the things we could detect with our finite senses here. And it doesn't mean that any of this stuff is any less real um, or that, uh, you know, we, we that life is meaningless or anything like that. That's not the basic core philosophy behind this. What it's stating, though, is that uh, there are many things that are unknowable to us. And we'll, we'll get to that. 
uh, in this next part here and we're almost finished so hang in there we only have a little bit more reading to go we may go a little bit long here anyway uh, where did we leave off unknowable this gives the key to the constitution of matter and its relation to force it is in this way, by a perfect system of scales, etc., that we are able to understand the rising and manifestation of force into matter, the evolution of form, and all these principles which the scientists generally relegate to the realm of the unknowable, because they do not know anything of them themselves, and they assume, therefore, that it is impossible, it is impossible to understand them. Ever since science accepted the dictum of Herbert Spencer, that the absolute is totally inexplicable, that the mind cannot form the slightest comprehension of things in themselves, but can only comprehend the relative, all effort for the attainment of ultimate knowledge has been abandoned. Starting out with the assumption that knowledge is received through the physical senses, this view is perfectly consistent. But there is a realm beyond the border which can never be penetrated by the physical senses. Man has provided with a has been provided with a set of metaphysical senses for the cognition of this realm of nature. The facts cognized by these senses are just as much facts as those cognized through the physical senses. And I'm going to pause there, folks. He's making an important distinction here. Not everything is objectively measurable by scientific method, okay? But it doesn't make it any less valid. And that's why, um, you know, it's important to look at things uh, and information that's uh, obtained in other ways other than strictly through what they would call the, the quote-unquote scientific method or things that are measurable and like objectively measurable in the physical sense. Uh, you, there's certain things in this world that are subjective and you can't measure them through the scrutiny of scientific method. And that's what this is talking about here. And this would be the, the side of the coin that we would call metaphysical. Okay, so there are certain things that we can know about, say, these other planes of existence or these uh, other aspects of our, our, the nature of our reality uh, through other means than what they would call science, you know, all the, the science people out there. Uh, but uh, let's, let's continue on. We're almost done. I'm going to finish up the reading now. The facts cognized by the senses are just as much facts as those cognized through the physical senses. When the intellectual faculties derive all their facts from the physical world, they can only arrive at physical conclusions, for the intellect can only reason from data, and as the data is, so will the conclusion be. Even in the case of deductive reasoning, the effect must correspond to the cause which is taken as the premise from which the deduction is made. It will be seen, therefore, that without data concerning the metaphysical realm, it will be an utterly impossible feat to attain unto a knowledge of metaphysical truths by the reason. What we require is an induction based upon all the phenomena of nature, both physical and metaphysical, leading to the principles which will be universal, and may be taken as a basis for deduction, which will lead unto universal effects thus enabling us to reach noumena, and not merely phenomena. In this way, we will have a real science, and not merely a physical philosophy. With this science of cosmology, there must be correlated a perfectly scientific knowledge of man in all of his parts, 
dealing with all of the principles, the unseen and occult, as well as the seen and tangible. The latent powers of the soul must be considered and assigned their proper place, as well as all of the present known psychic faculties. In this way, a perfect and complete psychology, dealing with the entire constitution of man, must be formulated and correlated with the science of cosmology above described. Together with this, there must be correlated a science of divinity, resting not upon speculative philosophy dealing with the testimony of another, credulity, or human opinion, but upon individual interior illumination. Our view of God must rest solely upon personal experience, upon an individual union with him, resulting in a personal acquaintance with him. It must be a matter of absolute knowledge, not mere belief. Such a knowledge of God, resting upon individual enlightenment and not upon testimony, no matter how reliable, will constitute a true theosophia, or divine wisdom, it says in parentheses, rather than a theologia, divine knowledge, it says in parentheses. This is the true meaning of theosophy in its narrower sense, and only those who have this divine wisdom are theosophists in the true sense. When this theosophy is correlated with the psychology and the cosmology above described, we will have a complete science showing the relation between God, man, and the universe, and at the same time containing nothing but absolute truth. In this way, the road to ultimate knowledge, or more properly speaking, wisdom, in relation to all things, both natural and divine, is opened. And this is the meaning of theosophy in the broader sense of the term. Nature being but a manifestation of God. Theosophy, divine wisdom, must in the ultimate include the relation of nature, the effect, to God, the cause. The various theosophical societies have reduced theosophy to a philosophical cult and have thus destroyed its character of a science, or rather of the divine wisdom. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me there. True theosophy has nothing to do one way or the other with the theories which these societies have falsely put forward under the sacred name of theosophy. The divine wisdom is the sense above stated is what we teach in these lessons. We therefore teach everything but only absolute truth in regard to every subject giving the relation between God, man, and the universe, and only giving out first-hand knowledge on each point so dealt with. As an introduction to the study of this Theosophia, it is necessary that we have an understanding of the ultimate constitution of nature. In order to accomplish this end, the science of motion and number, or true metaphysics, must be understood. This science gives the ultimate cause of all the phenomena of nature, it is, in a word, a kind of transcendental physics, dealing with the unseen as well as the seen. The first requisite, therefore, to an understanding of Theosophia is an understanding of the science of motion and number. And that is the end of Lesson 1, folks. <coughs> so, uh, the author here has pointed out something very strikingly obvious in, uh, you know, the, this uh, last section here. He says, the various theosophical societies have reduced theosophy to a philosophical cult and have thus destroyed its character of a science, or rather of the divine wisdom. So, he's correct about that. Uh, when you look into uh, many of the theosophists and the things that they teach, 
uh, they've taken some of these ideas and inverted and twisted them. And, and you, you see these games that they play. And the same can be said of all these other secret society groups. Uh, there are many uh, within these secret society groups that have taken many of these philosophical ideas and some of these older ideas, these alchemical and natural science ideas, and they've twisted and perverted them into something they were never intended to be. And uh, they've hidden much of this knowledge from the common man and uh, have used it in a weaponized form against us. And, and that's exactly what he's pointing out. And we see that uh, in the popular theosophical movement, the Theosophical Society, and uh, many of those type things led by uh, Madame Blavatsky and others. They've taken many of these teachings and perverted them and twisted them into uh, a, a total, the total opposite of what they were intended to be. It's, it's the uh, total transformation of our natural world into something wholly unnatural. It's, it's total inversion. And that's what these, they've done with many of these teachings. But uh, much of the information uh, held in these things is important. And there is a ring of truth in much of it. It just takes some discernment, and you have to be uh, very careful when you're looking at many of these sources to see what, what's their M.O., what's their motivation behind this, what's their agenda, uh, what, what are they doing. Are, are they uh, puffing themselves up, uh, their ego with these things? Are, you know, are they claiming to be um, you know, something that they're not? Are they, are they trying to attain godhood? Uh, and, and that's the thing. Many of these people have twisted and perverted many of these teachings and ideas and uh, have turned them into something they weren't originally intended to be. But I'm here to tell you, folks, there's, there's many of us out there who are rediscovering uh, some of these older philosophies and ideas and uh, finding the good and the true within them, what the original intentions were. And uh, it's, it's because of sources like the Internet, tools like the Internet that have come about that have made this kind of stuff possible. See, in the past, this type of information would not be available uh, to people like us, to regular people. You wouldn't be able to find it so easily. You would have to join one of these secret brotherhoods and be initiated through all their different initiations and uh, then be taught the twisted and perverted forms of these things in order to uh, be able to find this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> it's important we take a look at some of these things. And uh, like I said, there's a lot of good information in this book. Uh, I hope you folks enjoyed this tonight. Thank you.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.